so uh, growing up, I watched a lot of TV. You could say the TV was the third parent in the house for me because my parents both worked full time. And when I was old enough to kind of like watch myself, I was just at home and I just watched TV, okay? And this, I didn't have cable. I just had the normal antenna channels that you could get with an antenna, okay? And I was very, uh, I was very good about it. I had uh, the TV guide, okay? This is aging me a bit. Something like this illustration is not going to make sense to a whole bunch of the people in the room. But I had a TV guide. All right, let's see if I figured it out. Sorry. I had a TV guide. I knew all the good shows on. And so I watched a lot of daytime TV. I didn't get into soap operas. That was never my thing. But what was my thing was all these old reruns of shows. And they could be comedies. They could be sitcoms. They could be dramas. They were all sorts of things. I had my rotation. 9 a.m. I know, you know, maybe sometimes I go and watch The Price is Right. I would do all kinds of things. I would know exactly what I was going to watch at what times I was going to watch them. And one of the shows that I got into for a number of years, and it makes sense because there's nine seasons of it on television, is called Little House on the Prairie, okay? All the homeschool kids know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It's like, I don't, I've heard that. I wasn't homeschooled, but I know the homeschool kids are like, this is, they let us watch this. I don't know why. I think there's a class called Little House on the Prairie class. I don't know. But what I knew about Little House on the Prairie was I actually had read it in school a little bit. Uh, there's a book series, and it's based on uh, this family, this uh, author, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote these memoirs from her life about what it was like when they traveled from the, these woods, the big woods, to this prairie and built this home and became this family. And so... <clears throat> As I got to the TV show, I was like, oh, great, this TV show is going to be about them building this house. Because whatever, for whatever reason, I really was like, it's about this house. I was a kid, too, so I thought the title told you what the thing was about, right? So I thought it was going to be about this house, about building this house, about surviving in this house. But then you get to the show, Little House on the Prairie, and the house is built, I think, episode one. Like, it's there already. I, I remember being confused as a kid, like, don't they need to build more? Like, what is going on here? And what you find out is the show, it, it's really about this family. And it's really about the trials and tribulations that they go through. It's really about the values that they try to live out as a family. It's really about the things they commit themselves to as a family. And you watch this family grow up over nine years. You watch them get married. You watch... Mary go blind, you watch all kinds of things. That's a real thing. That sounds, that's not a joke. I think it was real life, so my bad. But um, you watch all these different things happen on Little House on the Prairie, and what you realize is as much as the house was necessary for the title of the show and for their family, that's not what made them a family. What made them a family was the values they committed themselves to, the love they had for one another, how they chose to live that out, how they chose to teach that to one another. So, so far in the book of Nehemiah, the whole book of Nehemiah has been propelled by this project that Nehemiah undertook to build these walls of Jerusalem. Like the whole book has been about let's get these walls so the people of God could be safe, so they could go to bed at night and not worry about some invaders coming in and ransacking them. And we finished up Nehemiah chapter 6 last week, and what we see is the walls are done, the walls are built. And this is what started the book. This is what pushed the book forward. And so any of us that, if you're like me, when I was first watching Little House on the Prairie, you're going, the book is over. What else is there? But what we're going to see today in Nehemiah is Nehemiah is going to take a shift. 
this big project of building the walls, which was important for the people of God, especially in that time and place, is now done. And so they're going to shift towards what does it mean for them to be the people of God in their identity? Not just in their infrastructure, not just in their walls. What does it mean for them to live out their identity as the people of God? What sort of values are they supposed to have? What sort of things are they supposed to do? What sort of things are they supposed to embody? And so Nehemiah has a number of chapters left, and each of these chapters is taking time to say, who are we as the people of God? What do the people of God do? What is our identity as the people of God? And so we're going to be taking this shift in Nehemiah where we're going to look at what does it mean for us to live out and embody God's character in us as a people? What does it mean for us to be God's people? Right? We've been saying time and time again that Nehemiah is attempting to answer the question, what does it mean to be God's people? especially in times of danger, in times of discouragement. And I think as we see Nehemiah take this shift, I think we should look closely at the different ways that God's people embody being the people of God. Because I think they were going through similar things, and I think the ways that they embody it are ways that we are called to embody it as well. The, ch- the church in America just went through a fracturing where we began to see a lot of people had their own definition of church, or a lot of people have been manipulated into believing some other definition of what it means to be God's people. But what I want us to do today is to go into Nehemiah and say, what does God have for us? Who does God want us to be? What does that look like to live that out and embody that as a people? And so what we're going to do today, we're going to go through Nehemiah chapter 7, and eight. We're going to go through two chapters. I'll summarize parts. I'll read parts because it's, it's a lot there. And we're going to stop at four different moments. And we're going to look at one of these. Each time we stop, we're going to look at a characteristic of God's people. That's something that I want to be a characteristic of us that helps form our identity as a church as well. Okay? So four different times, four different characteristics that I want to form our identity as a church as well. All right, so let's hop into it. Nehemiah chapter 7. The words will be on the screen if uh, you don't have a Bible. And I'll start with us in verse 1. Follow along. It says this. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut, the, shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So let's pause there. We are, we're not going to look at a characteristic, but it's kind of summarizing what, how the end of chapter 6 and what they did. Like the infrastructure of Jerusalem has been built. They have the walls. They can bar the gates. The people can live within the walls of Jerusalem and be safe. They've set up a God-fearing, faithful governor to rule over them and, and, and guide them as a people. But the houses haven't been rebuilt. 
The people haven't been regathered into Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah starts this regathering process, this reforming process of, of their ideas, the people of God. Verse 5 and 6. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then it lists all the different groups and the different people and the different horses and the numbers and all the different people for the rest of chapter 7. It goes through and it lists everybody that came to Jerusalem when King Cyrus at the beginning of Ezra said, hey, you know what, Israelites, you've been in exile for a long time. You can go back to your land. You can go back and rebuild yourselves as a people. And it lists all those same people. Like this is, this is a, a classic Old Testament genealogy where when it's in our Bible reading plan, we kind of go like this, right? We just turn the next page. What's really boring about this one is it's actually twice in this book. Now, if you remember, Ezra and Nehemiah is actually one work together. Okay, we've separated over the years. I think for whatever reason in Western society, we're like two names. That's too difficult to figure out. We got to separate the names. But this was one work together. And in Ezra chapter 2, this exact same genealogy is right there in Ezra chapter 2. So not only is it a classic Old Testament genealogy, it happens twice in a really short book. Come on, Old Testament writers. Even the Old Testament writers, you gotta, go, you gotta know this is a little bit boring for us, right? <laughs> like, but then what we have to remember is the writers of this book were very intentional about what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. They knew they were putting the same exact genealogy in there twice. We've talked time and time again how Nehemiah is trying to form us as a people. That Nehemiah is not simply telling history, he is telling theology. He is teaching us what it means to be God's people. And so this genealogy, genealogy being in there twice must be something that Nehemiah is trying to form in us. must be something that Nehemiah is trying to tell us about who the people of God are. So how, how does this genealogy twice help form us as God's people. And this is the first characteristic of God's people that is foundational for the people of God, and I want it to be something that forms us, and it's simply this. God's people today and always are God's people because God made them his people. God's people are his people because he made us his people. He extended his grace. He extended this gift of himself to draw us in. He redeemed us by his power and his strength. God's people are God's people because God made us his people. Ezra and Nehemiah, when they're putting in these, this genealogy twice in this book, they're trying to communicate this. Look, all the people that left exile and came to Jerusalem are the same exact people, the same people that God drew out of exile, saved from exile. Those, that same group of people is the same exact people standing there, sustained through this project that was dangerous to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God's people are God's people by his strength 
by his work. He's the one that drew them out of exile. He's the one that sustained them as a people through this. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, as, as Nehemiah takes this shift into saying, what does it mean for us to embody this identity of being God's people? They start off with this genealogy because they want foundational to their identity the idea that they are God's people because God made them God's people. God is who has formed them as a people. God is who has saved them. God is who has redeemed them. God is who freed them from exile. God is who sustained them through this dangerous project. God's people are God's people because God makes us his people. It's so crucial for us as we move forward and we say, what does it mean for us to be God's people? To define ourselves by the work that God has done. To define ourselves by the idea that God has drawn us into his kingdom. That God has saved us. That God has redeemed us. That God has extended grace to us. It's so crucial that this lays the foundation of who we are as God's people. May we not forget that we are God's people because God makes us his people. And that's a beautiful reminder of his grace and his love towards us. Okay? God's people are his people because he makes us his people. All right, so the rest of chapter 7, let's keep going. The rest of chapter 7, it's just all these names and all the people. So I'm going to read it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's all the names of all the people that came, and it's the number of camel and the number of horses and the number of all these things. Like, it's all, it's all these things. So let's get to chapter 8 and keep going and see how they begin to reform themselves as the people of God. Chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of, of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And a lot of guys stood behind him. We're going to skip that because I'm not going to butcher these names in front of you. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. A whole bunch of more names, small group leaders, essentially. They read from the, group, the, from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, let's stop there. So they, they get this genealogy. They, they have this genealogy that forms them. And then what they decide to do is they decide to get the law. The, the first five books of the Bible, more than likely. And they, they say, hey, let's... Let's set up a, a thing in this square by this water gate, and let's, let's just read from the law. Let's just read this book. Let's just read it and go through it. So the book of the law of Moses is, is probably more than likely the first five books of the Bible. Now, what you have to remember is this word law, although it's a good translation for us, this is their word Torah. 
And for the people of God, law was not like kind of how we in in our traditions understand the law, like rules that are bad that we don't need anymore. They understood the law to be this good gift of God for their flourishing. And so they take this good gift of God in these words for their flourishing, and they read it as a people. Everybody's there. Men, women, children, I think, even that could understand And they read through it. And then not only do they read through it, is different people in that list of names that I skipped over, they go and they help the people understand. I imagine they didn't have a microphone, and so I think it was probably even helpful for them to get into smaller groups and say, hey, what does this mean or what does that mean? And different people trained in God's word to say, hey, this is what it means. This is what this means. This is what that means. And they spend some time just looking at the Bible and saying, God, what are you trying to speak to us? What does it mean? And they take time to understand it. Which gets us to, I think, the second key characteristic of God's people in all times and in all places. And it's this. We are a people rooted in his word. God's people are a people rooted in his word, in the Bible, in the scriptures, whatever you call it. We are rooted in this. God's people have always been a people rooted in his word. Right? We believe a bizarre thing, I'll admit it. We believe this bizarre thing that God took real people with real personalities to write real books with all sorts of genres And that somehow God breathes through those people and they are his words to us. That is a bizarre thing to believe. right? It it, it spits in the face of our sensibilities. But this is something that God's people have always believed. We are people rooted in this. We are people that understand his word, know his word. We are a people that when people say, hey, how how is your identity as the people of God formed? We'd say, well, through scripture. Scripture helps form our identity as the people of God, and I want this always to be characteristic of this church, that we are people rooted in the Word. I think I've noticed recently that sometimes people will bring up different cultural things to me, and I'll go, well, let's go to Scripture and see what Scripture speaks about this, and people are almost surprised. I'm kind of like, well, no, this this is us. Like, this is who we are. We are people of the book. We are people of his word. Now, now to be clear, we're not like religiously, dogmatically people of the book and the word in the sense that we're just like following it in some kind of weird, unrelational way with God. The reality is God actually did this stuff. God actually spoke these things to the world. world, To the world. This is how God spoke to us. And so we are people rooted in his word because it tells the story of his work in the world. It tells many stories of his conversations with us. It tells us what human flourishing really looks like. We are people of the book. This is a key identity of the people of God. So sometimes we'll go to this book, it it will be confusing. It will be hard, but that doesn't mean we're not people of the book. It's really only in the last like 200 years as different scholars have come out and, and, and started doing different things and saying different things that, that the people of God began to kind of move away from this book as part of their identity. That's all recent. Like the people of God have always had this book as, 
as a foundational aspect of their identity. It's a crucial part of who we are as God's people. So if that's true, we should know this book. We should read this book. We should study this book. We should understand this book. We should allow ourselves to be corrected by this book. I'm going to say that one again. Allow ourselves to be corrected by this book. We should read all of this book. We should not cherry pick this book to affirm our worldview. We should let this book examine us rather than us critique it. When this book gets really hard and it's hard to understand and it doesn't make sense and it it really spits in the face of our sensibilities like I talked about, we should wrestle with this book and not let go. We are people of the book. I'm not saying this is an easy book to understand all the time. I'm not saying it's easy to follow God by listening to his words through scripture. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is for the people of God, this book has always been at the core of who they are as the people of God. It always has been. This book roots us as a people. It should be a fundamental part of our identity as God's people and how we live that out. All right? Let's keep going. Chapter 8, verse 9. Let's hop into the, this kind of really interesting little story in the midst of this. So they just read the law and explained it to everybody, and this is how people react. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay, so this is just a really interesting scene that I feel like I've glossed over I don't, I, 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 in past readings of Nehemiah. But the people of God, what, what, what's happened is they've read the law and what we know from the context of Nehemiah and in the context of in, in the next chapters they begin to confess their sins, they're crying after hearing the word of God because they're like, we haven't done this. They're, they're weeping over the fact that they have not lived up to the life, the Torah, the law that God has for them. They're sad that their fathers haven't done it. They're sad that their ancestors haven't done it. They're sad that they themselves haven't done it. And so they become grieved at their sinfulness. They become grieved at it. And I'll be honest, there's something sinful in me as a person. Is there, there's something particularly delicious to me when someone sees their sin and is grieved by it. There, I, there, it's just it's something wrong with me. When someone realizes the weight of what they've done, and it, even if it causes them to cry, there's something in me going, yes, right? Like there's just, it's something wrong with me. But luckily these priests aren't like me because when I'm like that, I'm missing a part of who God is. These priests see all the people crying over their sin, over their failures. And they say, guys, don't cry. Party. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, th- th- this is what the priests say. They say, don't cry, celebrate. Find your strength in the joy of the Lord and the contentedness of what he has done to save us. Instead of cry, celebrate 
Celebrate that God has sustained us. Celebrate that God has brought us in as a people. Celebrate that God has rebuilt our walls through our hands. Celebrate. This is a beautiful thing that the people of God are living out here. There, this is a key idea about God that should form our identity as the people of God. And it's this. These priests got it, and I don't get it, but God doesn't want us grieved as much as he wants us joyed by his grace. Okay, I'm going to say that again. God doesn't want us grieved as much as he wants us joyed by his grace. Now, the people that know the Bible really well, they're going, listen, Anthony, Paul talks about there is a godly grief that leads to a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And listen, there is. There is a godly grief over our sin. Like, it is good to be convicted by our sin at times. I'm not saying don't be convicted. I'm just saying the way of God, the way for the people of God is not one where we just sit in our grief for for hours on end. The way of the people of God is to find their strength in the joy of the Lord. We were saved by grace. We continue in grace. We continue in the celebration that God has saved us. That God has done something in us. The reason I think we need to hear this is simply this. Just ask yourself this. Does church feel more like a funeral or more like a wedding banquet? Because when God describes his kingdom and when he describes who he draws in, he describes it more like a wedding banquet, more like a feast. And too often we live our faith out like it's a funeral. Where we have to be solemn all the time, sad all the time. I've literally read some of my favorite preachers and theologians who say, if you're a happy Christian, something is wrong with you. Because you're not understanding your sin enough. I would contend if you're a happy and joyful Christian, maybe you understand the gospel better than most. Maybe you understand what God has done for you better than most. When Jesus returns, this thing, this world is going to be one big happy feast. Not a giant funeral. The people of God, although we're convicted by our sin, we are grieved by our sin, we do confess our sin, that's not where God wants us to stay. God wants us to find strength in the joy of the Lord the contentedness of what he's done. We're saved by grace. We continue in his grace. That's what forms our identity as God's people. We as the people of God get to rejoice, even though we don't deserve to, even though we fail time and time again, even though practically speaking, it doesn't make sense. This is the good news of the gospel. God invites us into a feast, not a funeral. God would rather us rejoice and find our strength and joy in him. God is is inviting us to this party that he catered, that he paid for everything, that he planned, that he invited everybody, even though some of those things were our responsibilities. He invites us to that party. And so we can feast, we can celebrate, we can be thankful for what God has done. God doesn't want us grieved as much as he wants us joyed in him because of his grace towards us. 
That's who the people of God should be. We shouldn't be people obsessed with mourning over our sin. We should be a people obsessed with recognizing our sin and then moving quickly into the arms of his grace. This is who God is. He wants us to find joy in him. When people say, hey, there's not a lot of good news in the Old Testament, I go, listen, one time everybody was crying. The priest said, you know what the solution is? Let's party. Let's party and make sure everybody can go. Even if they can't afford to party, they can't afford to bring their own drinks and food, let's make sure they can. God wants us to find our joy in him and what he's done. Okay, let's go to this last section of Nehemiah uh, chapter 8.13. Or, yeah, 8.13. And I'll read a couple verses, and I'll skip a couple verses and read a couple more. 13 says this, On the second day, the heads of the of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths, booths during the feast of the seventh month. And then they describe how those booths should be made and, what the, and them going and getting it. And then hop down to verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay. So instead of mourning, instead of sitting in their mourning, the people of God go to the law, and they find that there had already been this feast of booths. We saw this in John. Jesus celebrates and teaches at the feast of booths. And so they say, we need to reinstitute this feast of booths. And it makes sense because the feast of booths was a reminder to the people of God that God had sustained them through this wilderness period. This period where the people of God had rebelled against him in a variety of ways to a point where God said, you know what, I just have to let some of the generation die off before I bring you in to the promised land to make you my people. And so they live in this wilderness time, which feels like a punishment and a timeout, and yet God still provided them food each and every day. Manna from heaven. And he took care of them for 40 years. And so this Feast of Booths was actually a celebration going, look, God takes care of us even when we don't deserve it, even when we mess up. And they say, I think that kind of sounds like where we're at. We need to reinstitute this. Like we have messed up as a people. We've been exiled as a people because of our own actions. So let's reinstitute this Feast of Booths, remembering that God sustains us in the wilderness times as well. Let's reinstitute this. Let's celebrate this. And so they all get booths and they all live in these like kind of like tents all week. Again, I've called it Jewish Burning Man before. And uh, I think that's kind of, I don't know what Burning Man is. I've just heard of it. And so, uh, and so I think that's kind of what's going on. And I think what they do here with God's word is the last key characteristic that I want to talk to us about today. That, that's something that I want to be formed in our identity as God's people. And it's this. God's people respond to God's word. Okay, one way I wanted to say it was God's people respond in worship to his word, but myself and many have hijacked this worship word to just mean singing, but when you look at the Old Testament and especially the New Testament, worship is not just singing. Worship is taking the totality of your life and giving it to God. 
as a sacrifice, as a reflection, as an act of worship to him. We as people are called to give the totality of our lives to God because of what he's done. And so when God speaks, we respond. And I don't mean we talk back. I mean when God says something, we live it out. There is a demonstration of our faith as well. Me and Chris were just talking about this mid-service. There should be a demonstration of our faith. It's not just words that go in our head and stay in our head. It is something that we live out. God's people respond to God. We don't have a static faith. We have a living and an acting faith that does something, that moves in this world. We have a faith that hears God and responds accordingly. Now listen, that doesn't save us. That doesn't get us closer to God or anything like that. God is as close as he can be to us because of the gospel. But this is just who God's people are. We respond to him. We do things. I think over the last 500 years, it's become controversial to say, hey, God said this, so we do this. And it's for a variety of reasons. Some people got legalistic with it. Some people got too gracious with it. There's all kinds of things that happen because of that. But God's people have always been a responding people when we're living at our healthiest. We respond to God by living things out, by doing what he's called us to do. So that means like when we see that he's guided the redemption of history, we sing to him for it. That means when we realize he's given us life, we steward our lives in a way that honors and worship and praises his name and reflects his image. When we realize that he saves us in all sorts of miraculous ways, we tell people about it. When we see that he's given us his son, we follow his son. We pick up our cross and live like his son and be like his son. When he says he cares for the poor and wants us to treat the poor justly, we provide for the poor. This is scriptural, not anthonial. Right? Another crazy thing that's become controversial in the last year. If I say we should provide for the poor, you're going, wait, 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 wait. I'm just reading the Bible. This is God's word to us. Do we have to be wise about it? Yes, that's the book of Proverbs. There is a way for us to listen to God and respond, and too often we let it become controversial. When he reveals who he is, we sing some more. When he wants us to live justly, we live justly. When he wants us to live justly, we realize his vision of justice will help society flourish. Okay, I'll get your emails later about that one. Um, we, we do stuff. <laughs> like, God's people do stuff. We don't just sit here. We don't just have a static faith. God came into the world. He took on flesh. We live an incarnational life ourselves as God's people. This is fundamental to our identity as God's people. It's not what saves us, but it is fundamental to our identity as God's people. 
I, I think too many of us in the room, we get focused on, on one half of the equation. Too many of us in the room are focused on just listening to God. Right? Think of our heroes in the room. Our heroes in the room or in the faith in general, they usually know the Bible really, really well. Or if that's not our hero, you might be on the other side of it. You go, your heroes in the room are the people that really embody the Bible really, really well. And here's the problem. When you listen and don't do anything, I wonder if you're really actually listening. And when you respond without listening, you often respond in ways that are not the way that God would have you respond. The people of God listen and respond. I grew up in churches, and I'm not trying to bash people in those churches, but I grew up in churches where people were obsessed with the Holy Spirit. And I think some churches in our vein kind of could use some of that at times. But they were obsessed with the Holy Spirit. But do you know what's something I often noticed in a lot of the men in particular in those churches? They weren't obsessed with the fruit of the Spirit. May that not be us. May we not be obsessed with these words in here and memorize them and know them and then our lives aren't changed at all. And we don't live this out at all. And we put precautions on every single way to live out God's word. There's wisdom. But I think sometimes we say something's wisdom when it's really an excuse to not live out part of God's word or apathy. God's people respond to God. That's who we are. This is the world's critique of us. You know that, right? This is often the world's critique of us. Hey, I I saw that Jesus said do this, and you guys are doing the exact opposite of that. Why is that? And we go, because this verse in Proverbs. Man, that's confusing. We confuse the world when we don't respond, when we don't live out our faith. We are people that respond when he speaks to us. We live this out. How I want to close the sermon here is that how I've been closing it most of the weeks that that I've been preaching in Nehemiah is we need to see how Jesus has lived all of these these identities out and make it so all these identities are a fundamental part of the people of God. Jesus roots us in this. Jesus makes it so that we can be this people. This is a beautiful truth of the power of Christ through his spirit that we get to experience. Like, like he makes us his people by his work of bringing us into his kingdom that came about through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He is the word that we stay rooted in. He spoke the word that we stay rooted in. He wants us to find our joy and strength in him and not ourselves. Jesus does the saving. Jesus does the drawing in. Jesus does the sustaining. We continue in the grace that Jesus has given us. That's why we continue in grace. That's why we can celebrate. That's why we can rejoice. And Jesus invites us to respond to his words so that the world could experience his kingship. He invites us to respond. He sends people out. He tells us to pick up our cross. He invites us to respond to his word. This is who we are as God's people. And it's because these are all the things that Jesus has for us. These are all the ways Jesus has formed us. These are all the things that Jesus himself embodies. That's why this is our identity as God's people. May we find this church to be a place where we 
embody those identities of the people of God, those characteristics of the people of God. And may we take the next few weeks to look at some of these other ways that the people of God begin to embody their identity as God's people. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you so much for how you saved us, how you've done all the work, how you've forgiven us, how you've made forgiveness possible. Thank you for extending grace to us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for sustaining us. God, thank you that you're a God that invites us to a feast and not a funeral. God, thank you for giving us your word. Help us, God, when we're wrestling with it. Help me as a teacher of your word to teach it well. Help us as a people of your word to embody it well, to instruct each other on it well. Help us not to twist your word. Like, seriously, God, help us not to twist your word for our own benefit, for our own perspectives. God, help us to live out your word. Help us to be a people that when people look at this church and these, us in this room and all the different areas of life that we all embody, that they would see you in some way, that they would be drawn to you. God, help us to be the people of God. Help us to be the pure people of God, holy and set apart, reflecting your image, chasing after you, knowing you more. Help us to be that people, God. We need to be that people. God, we love you and we need you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for sustaining us. Amen.